Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be talking about last weekend's South Australian state election. My guest today is Rob Manwaring. Rob is an associate professor in the College of Business, Government and Law at Flinders University. Hello, Rob. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me on the show. We're recording this on Monday morning. It looks fairly clear now that the Marshall Liberal government has been defeated after just four years in power. Labor has gained at least six seats in addition to the 19 seats they held in 2018 and the one seat that's traditionally a safe Labor seat that was vacated by an independent. So that gives them a total of 26 seats, at least two more than they need for a majority. There are a number of other seats still in play, with incumbent Premier Stephen Marshall trailing Labor in his seat of Dunstan. Overall, Labor is on track for a result similar to the 2006 election, which was their best result during the 16 years of the last Labor government. Rob, it's unusual to see a first-term government lose power. Was the Marshall government really that bad? That's a great question, Ben. Before I answer that, I just want to say a couple of things. One is that I think it's the nature of the surprise of the result. Um, I think in our correspondence in the lead-up to coming on the show, I'd... uh, made a wager for $10 that I didn't think we would have a result or a clear indication of a result this early. So it's worth just reflecting on, I think, upon just how surprisingly well the Labour Party have done and the extent of their kind of win, which then feeds into your question, was it a bad government? Well, no, not really. It was, in one sense, a pretty average government in some respects. Lots of people would say it was a bit of a do-nothing government uh, there. But it's worth putting some context around some of that. So I'd also say that one of the difficulties or the failures of the Marshall government was uh, failure to get policy lift off. So they had a number of kind of signature policy reforms at the 2018 election. They just didn't take off here in the state. So there was uh, very troubled reforms of land tax, which didn't happen and caused divisions within the party. The mining bill in 2018, uh, it caused four of the government MPs to cross the floor, voting against their own government's bill. And then things like shop deregulation hours didn't kick off. So there were failures of policy. They didn't land some punches. Some other things worth reflecting upon. Where they did get policy wins, they were often in social policy. So during the course of the last parliament, we've had decriminalisation of abortion in the state. And we've also had introduced legislation to um, for euthanasia and assisted dying. So both very progressive social policy reforms. On abortion, it brings us, so South Australia was the laggard. It's brought us back into uh, the, the realm of the rest of the country. But the effect of these um, social policy reforms actually seemed to inflame and alienate the conservative base and inflame the divisions in there. And then the final thing probably to say is about COVID. You know, how much was COVID a particular factor? And one of the things that... Uh, Stephen Marshall and other Liberals are saying is that, well, they got a bit unlucky with the Omicron. Well, there's there's something kind of in this. So overall, you'd say there was a, it was a sort of a bit of a do-nothing government to some extent, but it lacked a really clear narrative as it went into the election. Well, one of our previous guests compared this government to the uh, Liberal National Victorian government in the early 2010s that uh, lost power after one term, as opposed to the Newman government in Queensland, which also lost power after one term in 2015, but was much more a kind of a radical government. Um, But the Victorian government was a bit more um, do nothing and that the Marshall government was more in that mode, which was interesting. That was in the context of could they actually lose? I think that's worth dwelling upon the incumbency factor, because one of the things you would say, so I think the Natfine government in Victoria was probably a really good example of that. So it wasn't the Marshall government wasn't a dreadful government by any stretch of the imagination. But if you look at the electoral history of South Australia, of course, um, actually, one-term Liberal governments are quite common, certainly since the end of the Playford era. So Steel Hall's government in the 1970s punctuated the Dunstan era. And then I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, it's the Olsen governments 
uh, a little bit further down. Again, both of them one-term governments. So there is something here where Labour plays out well in the States. And I wonder the extent to which not having a significant nationals party is uh, is actually a problem for the for the for the liberal party because in one sense the nationals can mop up a lot of the regional rural vote or some of that and then that perhaps would free up the liberal party to be more uh, able to kind of pitch itself more clearly to its metropolitan in the city base so all four of the incumbent independents who've been re-elected hold rural electorates. And actually, all three of the other independents who are kind of worth watching who could potentially win their seat are also in rural areas. So the Liberal Party, which really relies on that rural electorate base, is is in a lot of trouble. If they lose Flinders, the four electorates that kind of are the furthest away from Adelaide to the northwest, there'll be three independents and one Labor and no Liberals at all. So that is, that is an interesting trend. Maybe we now we get to those independents because it was a very good night for independents. I went through the record back to about 1975 and I found no election that ever elected more than four crossbenchers. Last election, there were three and then three more have defected from the Liberal Party since then. At the moment, we're looking at at least four, um, probably five is the most likely number, maybe as many as seven independents getting elected in the lower house. What what do you make of that, uh, Rob? Well, a couple of things. One is, um, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, one, of course, one of the growing trends we've seen in Australian politics in recent years is the vote for minor parties and independents. Uh, that has increased dramatically. I think at the federal election, for example, that was the largest um, number of votes, first preferences for minor party and independents. So there's a kind of general trend there. And also, I think you'd say federally and also at the last state election or running into this state election, I should say, it's the largest number of MPs we've seen on the crossbench. So there's a, there is something in changing there. And I think if you look at the Australian electoral study, what you're seeing also is that lifetime rusted on voters is in decline. And there seems to be then some sort of appetite to uh, this. And the bigger picture story for me, which we can touch upon now or perhaps a little bit later, is, is what I'm calling like the fragmentation and the fraying of the centre-right. Because... This is a story which uh, is really playing out on having much more impact upon uh, the Liberal Party and the Nationals than it is necessarily, I think, uh, for for the Labour Party. So that's the that to me is the sort of bigger context around some of these 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 seats and these issues. Some trends I find interesting with these independents. So the four who've been re-elected, three of them are ex-Liberals. Uh, the fourth one, Jeff Brock, doesn't have that history. He was a local mayor. All men. Uh, on the other hand, though, the three, maybe even four, who we've talked about as potential independent wins who are new, we've got Lou Nicholson and Finnis, who's on track to win. We've got an independent in Hammond, who is almost 50-50 on the two can they preferred, but probably won't quite make that count. We've got Heather Holmes Ross in weight, who's actually in fourth place, but hasn't been ruled out as a potential win from fourth and is winning the two can they preferred count very easily. And then we also have this independent in Flinders, who... Uh, we don't have enough for preference count yet, but it looks like it's close. All four of those people are women. That fits with the trend we've seen in federal politics where there are a lot of new independents running and they tend mostly to be women. The strongest ones tend to be running in liberal, some national seats, and we are seeing that here as well, that those eight seats I listed that have a chance of electing an independent, 
all eight of those in the absence of the independent would be a safe liberal seat, I would think. Uh, Wait, Wait's the one exception. Wait, Wait will otherwise go to Labor, but the other seven are in that category. So it's very much a phenomenon hitting the Liberal Party from the side, kind of meaning that they they're fighting this election effectively on two fronts, right? Um, but uh, that's also one where there is a lot more women running in these seats now. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Uh, and also, I mean, what's kind of interesting and what the challenge there, of course, so for, for Stephen Marshall, the task of, of retaining office was harder because in one sense he was having to divert resources away from some of those key marginals, which to, he wanted to sandbag, which Labour were very effective to win. But then, of course, you've got these diversions in these seats, which are nominally safe Liberal seats, but actually more like at the federal level in the seat of Mayor Rebecca Sharkey are what you might describe as safe non-Labour seats. So this is a kind of frame. The issue, though, of gender has to be addressed head on. And in one, you would say, in one sense, there is perhaps a failure here on behalf of the Liberal Party, both nationally and at the state level, to rejuvenate the kind of culture and the recruitment of the party because it's seemingly failing to attract what are what could be potentially very strong candidates to their to their party and to win their cause, particularly around Lou Nicholson. And what's interesting for some of these liberals, many or independent-minded uh, kind of uh, people or women candidates, is that is that often they're flagging the issue of climate change, for example, and the environment in their policy agenda. It's something you've kind of. Uh, that you're not really kind of seeing playing out. So I think it's a kind of a different, for some of these uh, candidates, a different kind of moderate type of liberalism, which isn't really being given a proper airing within the party. And then what you would say about South Australia, um, as we were just talking before the recording began, is that uh, South Australia did have uh, in the last parliament the lowest level of female representation of all the Australian parliaments. And in fact, with colleagues, we've recently uh, been doing a democratic audit of the state of South Australia, and this really sings out. And of course, there was a running joke within the kind of media, uh, well, not necessarily a particularly funny joke, that there were more men called uh, David or Stephen in the cabinet than there were women. And whilst there was, of course, very high profile Deputy Premier Vicky Chapman, actually the party uh, was really quite dominated by white middle-class men. How do you think the leaders performed in this election? And specifically, it's worth mentioning uh, Stephen Marshall is currently um, about 140 votes behind in his electorate and may well lose his seat. Does, Does that reflect anything personally on him or is that just he represented a seat that was not particularly safe. In terms of his performance, he would say that Stephen Marshall, I think, is is generally a very affable figure, and uh, and he's quite. I think he's quite well liked. I know a number of, of people on either side of politics who, who sort of think he seems like a really nice person, um, but in one sense, seemingly lacking a, a, a much more sort of uh, sort of compelling kind of narrative around what the kind of story was. I think it was interesting in the, in his concession speech. Uh, as well. He gave quite a very upbeat assessment of his uh, government's time in office, which you might well expect. And this kind of played out in the campaign. And the argument here, I think, is that probably he was probably too upbeat and in one sense uh, not necessarily addressing some of the concerns amongst the electorate around things like cost of living, um, particularly the health crisis and ramping which took place. Dunstan's kind of an interesting seat and I mean if he does lose his seat that will be extraordinary and in fact this would be part of the overall surprise of Labour's performance. So I think he did a reasonably strong performance or he was a reasonably 
uh, affable uh, kind of figure, kind of generally kind of well-liked, but actually uh, had not really mustered a distinctive or compelling enough campaign uh, kind of narrative. And that seems to me uh, to be fairly decisive in, in his performance. And in turning to Peter Malinowskis, the new Labour Premier of South Australia, you would say he has something of an X factor, really. He is just a, a generally uh, a relatively uh, charismatic, interesting kind of person. And he's in the te televised leadership debates that we had here in the state and in some of the press conferences and some of his interventions. He, he generally um, is a thoughtful uh, uh, kind of charismatic kind of leader. So in one sense, it was an easier task for Labour to, to do that to, when you have a leader uh, that was popular. So when you looked in the run-up to the polls on preferred Premier, for example, where it came through, particularly near the end, then Malinowskis comes through as quite a sort of popular and kind of likeable leader. And again, what you'd say is it, it was a strategically very smart campaign by the Labour Party. And this, uh, this sort of laser-like focus on health and the ramping ambulance crisis uh, really worked well to their advantage because it's it, it touches upon like the lived experience. Most South Australians or many will have interactions with the health system. There's a sort of general pervasive feeling always that there's not enough kind of funding that goes into this. And then when you had media reports taking place, even over the weekend of uh, you know people unfortunately dying as a result that needing ambulance kind of uh, trips and so forth. It just, in one sense, gave more fuel to this uh, to this kind of campaign. So overall, uh, you saw you know, two likable leaders. And the other thing we should say about Peter Balanowskis is that it's photogenic. So of course, um, the the photo shoot that he did in Adelaide Aquatic Centre with his uh, with his uh, top off with his family um, got people talking. Um, he's quite a ripped kind of figure, I think uh, we would say. And whilst we might joke about it, I think the the thing to say is that generally speaking, it's very hard for opposition leaders to get cut through. And it was, certainly was in the COVID space. And so he was canny and able to make that cut through. So events like that or that, that particular event just, again, helped to give him some publicity which he needed to, to galvanise the campaign. So why don't we run through quickly the seats that are still in play. Uh, I can run through the numbers a bit and if you have anything to say, Rob, feel free to jump in. I want to touch on first weight, uh, which is the seat. Uh, Sam Dulock, the sitting MP who had been a member of the Liberal Party but was running as an independent. He's coming a distant third. Uh, what's happening right now is there's um, Labor and Liberal are in first two and Labor is winning that count easily, but that is on a primary vote of 27.4%. The Greens, for example, are preferencing an independent Heather Holmes-Ross ahead of Labor. She's on 15.3%, so she's, she's in fourth place. But there is a theoretical path to victory for her if she can overtake Dulek, get his preferences, and then overtake the Liberal. On election night, she was winning a two-CP count against the Liberal, um, but the assumption here is she would also win a count against Labor. Um, so there's a chance for an independent there, but it's going to be a complicated one. We're going to have to wait for the full distribution of preferences, and probably Labor's the favourite to win there. The thing to say there, of course, um, is about the, the issue of Sam Dulek, and this was, again, it was a really unfortunate incident that probably didn't help uh, the term of, of Stephen Marshall's Liberal government is that Sandy Luck uh, was uh, involved in a kind of uh, it was an event at a Christmas party. 
kind of did actually lead to kind of judicial kind of actions where that he was like found not guilty. But in one sense, um, it was it was a kind of uh, distraction there. And in one sense, that then the the politics of that in terms of that seat means that you have like a, a sort of what was before seen as a relatively up and coming and popular uh, kind of candidate then being quite damaged goods. And then uh, it meant that the Labour Party and these candidates could kind of take advantage. And the fact that in one sense the weight is is in that mix is there speaks to uh, these other issues. The other thing I think just more generally about the independence, which we haven't really touched upon, I think, is what was one of the deciding or interesting decisive factors in the election was the SA best vote. Um, so the 2018 uh, election, of course, um, SA Best uh, had a relative, relatively strong showing in many, many seats, some scoring somewhere between 15 to 20 odd percent and even more in some of those kind of key seats. And I think it was a comment Anthony Green made on the ABC on, on Saturday night. He said, well, Nick Xenophon's had more impact upon this election than he did on the last one, because what's happened is there is, is that these uh, voters who were clearly fed up with 16 years of Labour rule didn't quite have the stomach to vote first preferences for a Liberal candidate in those seats. Went to a resurgent Nick Xenophon. There was one poll just before late 2017 which kind of speculated that Xenophon might be the new Premier of the state. And of course, in one sense, the, the, the that story didn't really happen for SA Best, except now what happened and what happened on Saturday night is that the SA Best vote has just dissipated and overall, overwhelmingly, it looks like my reading would be that much of that SA Best vote has gone to Labour or to some of those other candidates and they certainly haven't gone to the Liberals. So so in one sense, that's kind of, there's been a correction here in terms of the electoral results as a result of the kind of the falling SA Best vote. So then we have Dunstan. That's the only other seat where Labour's leading. We've already mentioned Dunstan at Stephen Marshall's seat. He's just narrowly behind, um, so could catch up, but at the moment it looks more likely than not that he'll lose. Um, Then we have four other seats where Labor is narrowly trailing the Liberals in close races. That includes Hartley, Hayson, Morialta, and Unley. Uh, Hayson's another interesting one because the Greens polled very well in Hayson, um, such that uh, Labor, well, Labor's a bit behind now, 1.5% behind, but Labor was competitive despite the fact that they barely polled 27% because the Greens polled 216 So that's that's an interesting one for the Greens, one to watch in the future that, you know, if they were to, to uh, leapfrog Labor there, that could be competitive in the future for them. And that's another seat in Mayo as well. Um, a lot of those Mayo electorates, uh, Liberals have done particularly badly. Hartley is interesting in the sense that Vincent Tarsier, the Liberal candidate there, was Speaker of the House for a while, another up-and-coming dynamic uh, kind of Liberal. In one sense, you would say you would have thought as like the future of the party. It's interesting how uh, his, you know, the, the kind of the vote swing there to, to Labour is not as strong, perhaps, as it had been in some of the other seats. So he's done, he's done some kind of good work there. But it's interesting just to see how much difficulty uh, the party are in there, even with one of their, I would say, one of their kind of more stronger or more liked kind of candidates. And I think Hartley, if I'm not mistaken, under different redistributions, has been held by Labour. I think it was Grace Portalazy who, who held the seat of Hartley uh, at least two or three election cycles back. So it's it's interesting that's come in the mix. But again, I go back to my my thinking that this the surprise that we're even talking about Hartley tonight or today is 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 pretty extraordinary, really. 
And then finally, we've already talked about them a bit, uh, but there are three other races where independents uh, still uh, can't rule out. Uh, Finnis, uh, Lou Nicholson looks pretty strong and likely to win. Uh, Flinders, the, uh, there was no two-can they prefer count on the night, so we're a bit behind on that count. But once we get that in, that will probably make things clear. But at the moment, it looks pretty close. And Hammond, uh, where the independent would need to close a decent-sized gap with Labor, and even then, that, that wouldn't guarantee her the seat. It would just put her in a very close race with the Liberals. So uh, there's a lot of places there. Look, probably most of these seats we've talked about, Liberals will win, and that will boost their numbers a bit. But uh, it does show how much the Liberals, it's not just the seats they've lost, but they also have a pretty weak hold on a bunch of the seats that they probably will end up winning. I mean, I think from my, my reading, I, I think you're closer to some of the numbers uh, than I am, is that is I think that seat of Finnis is the one that looks the most interesting and most likely. And again, that would speak to this kind of issue of, uh, of strong independence really being able to mount a kind of charge. And the kind of going forward, I think, what will be interesting to see the kind of the extent of the soul searching that takes place within the SA Liberal Party about how do they rebuild back from here? This could be a long road back to getting even close to being back in in uh, in, the, in government uh, for the Liberals, and they have a rural metropolitan divide to sort over. They have a kind of a gendered kind of issue, and then they also have kind of really pressing policy issue and debates. To kind of uh, to pull together, so the task for the Liberals is going to be a fairly tough one uh, moving forward. Finally, before we finish up, I want to touch briefly on the Upper House. Uh, about a little bit over half of the potential vote has been counted. Uh, Labor Liberal each will retain their four seats. The Greens will retain their one. That leaves two seats left over. At the moment, the leading candidate for the tenth seat is the One Nation candidate on zero point five quotas. And then the fifth Labor candidate is on 0.44 quotas for the 11th seat, narrowly followed by Lib Dems on 0.42 and Family First on 0.39. So those are probably the only contenders that come into play. Um, preferences could really make a difference on some of those close final counts, but also as more votes get counted, if the Labor vote goes up, they might lock in their position, and if the vote goes down, they may not be in a position to win. Um, but, yeah, it looks like at least one of those minor right-wingers will get elected, possibly two. If Labor wins that fifth seat, that will give them nine out of 22 seats. Uh, with the Greens, that'll give them 11 out of 22. So in a strong position, but not not an overwhelming position in the upper house by any means. Um, and this would be the first time, I believe, that One Nation would have won a seat in South Australian politics. That was exactly the point I was going to make. Uh, so I think they last contested in 2006, I think is when we last saw uh, one Nation kind of contested. I think they, they've been generally disorganised. I think there was one election 2010 or 2014, I think, where they failed to register in time because they missed the deadline. So there's there, there had been a lack of organisational structure here. But I think the prospect of a One Nation presence here is an unwelcome one, I would say. And that's uh, an interesting kind of new kind of change. And I think it does speak into this, this story about where Conservatives voters wanted to put or conservative-minded voters wanted to kind of support their vote. And, of course, the LegCo gives them a better range of options to, for, to do this. The other interesting kind of dynamic around this, and it might it'd be interesting to see whether family first pick up the CC, I think they, they might, of course, is the kind of the divisions that took place between family first and the, and the Australian Family Party. 
So the Family First Party had been set up in South Australia by sort of disaffected kind of uh, conservative-minded liberals. But actually the name was reactivated by Tom Kenyon and Jack Snelling, two former Labour ministers who've in one sense sought to reactivate the name. So if Family First get a seat, uh, and I think Kenyon's uh, heading at the top, top of the ticket, you'll get a former Labour uh, kind of member of parliament uh, within the uh, within the kind of legislative council, and that will kind of be that will be really interesting because there was a, a legal challenge about the use of the name by the Australian Family Party, claiming that, uh, that they can do it, but they lost that court case, and so they had to go with the with the name with the AFP name. So there's this sort of this is interesting kind of tussle there between different kind of conservative kind of groupings there and how them play out. One of the things you might just say, if it is family first, for example, so you, you're quite right that um, is that generally speaking, no party, no in the majors tends to have a majority within the, the ledge code. You can imagine uh, Labour could do some deals with uh, the Greens. They would also do some with the the two sitting current SA Best people. But then actually, you could there could be imagined that particularly on economic policy. That they might well get support from from the family first if they pick in, and then somebody not have to deal with, or even countenance kind of uh, dealing with a one nation if they do pick up that seat. So again, it's that kind of interesting story for me around what's going on with the conservative vote and the the, the, the sort of confection of parties there on the right. Yeah, well, there's a history in a bunch of parliaments that uh, while it's handy for Labor to be able to pass legislation with the Greens, it's also very handy for them to have other options other than the Greens that they can work with to give them flexibility depending on the issue or where they want to go. And I think unlike the ACT, for example, I don't necessarily think that Pinamalowskis coming from the right of the party will necessarily be wanting uh, to kind of do that. And in one sense, some of the mapping we did between federal Labour and the Greens with some with some colleagues, we looked at kind of policy overlap and distancing between Labour and the Greens and that coalition potential is actually on many grounds, uh, Labour are much closer to the centre uh, than they are to to kind of the left sort of uh, flank of, of the Greens policy. So in one sense, you could see Malinowski's trying to play with more space in the centre than he would necessarily uh, going with the Greens. And we're going to have you back on a, another podcast next month to talk about Labour and the Greens in the context of the federal elections. So I'm looking forward to that. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you, Rob, for joining me. Thanks, Ben. This is the last episode of our mini-series about the South Australian election, but uh, we won't be away for long. I'll be back in a fortnight to kick off our coverage of the federal election. So that will be a big one for the podcast, and be sure to stay tuned. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.